If you've got your Bibles, open them up to Judges chapter 19. Judges 19, verses 16 to 30. Obviously, we're continuing our series on tough texts. And this one definitely falls into that category. So Judges 19, 16 to 30. Then at evening there was an old man coming from his work in the field. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was residing in Gibeah. The people of the place were Benjaminites. When the old man looked up and saw the wayfarer in the open square of the city, he said, Where are you going and where do you come from? He answered him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to my home. Nobody has offered to take me in. We, your servants, have straw and fodder for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and the woman and the young man along with us. We need nothing more. The old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and fed the donkeys. They washed their feet and ate and drank and good times were had by all. Except that while they were enjoying themselves, the men of the city, a perverse lot, surrounded the house and started pounding on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house so that we may have intercourse with him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man is my guest, do not do this vile thing. Here are my virgin daughters and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Ravish them and do whatever you want to them. But against this man, do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and put her out to them. They wantonly raped her and abused her all through the night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. As morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. In the morning, her master got up, opened the doors of the house, and when he went out to go on his way, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. Get up, he said to her, we are going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man set out for his home. When he had entered his house, he took a knife and grasping his concubine, he cut her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Then he commanded the men whom he sent, saying, Thus shall you say to all the Israelites, Has such a thing ever happened since the day the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt until this day? Consider it, take counsel, and speak out. Over the last decade or so, My family and I have 
watch the life of someone who's very dear to us spiral out of control through alcohol and drug abuse, walking away from her marriage and her little girl, shacking up with another guy and having a baby with him, destroying her relationship with her husband and doesn't see her little girl anymore. Heartbreaking to see that happen to someone's life. You might have your own stories of people who you've seen their life completely fall apart. And you might know the heartbreak of seeing it and feeling helpless to be able to do anything about it. When we approach the book of Judges, this is God's people spiralling out of control in a way that is equally as heartbreaking. And this is a tough text, not only because of what we've just heard, but because of the heartbreak that comes at the cost of God's relationship with His covenant people. These are God's people set apart. And their complete and utter rejection of God finds its zenith in this text that we read today. This is a people completely and utterly out of control. We read right at the end of this book that in those days there was no king in Israel. And the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's how it ends. It doesn't zoom back up to this kind of, and God restored the people and all was well in the land. Nope. It is all the way down. All the way to the end. And this book is contextualized by that last verse. There was no king in Israel. This helps us to be able to understand that it's written from a time when there was a king in Israel and it's looking back. It's a bit like when we say to our kids, you know, there was a time where there was no internet and there was no mobile phone and you actually had to use the telephone and it had a cord to this little box that had this dial that you spun around. We can talk about the past from the present in a way that locates our kids in a time that was. So too, that's what's happening here. It's written from a time, most likely during the reign of Saul, where things weren't going so well. But perhaps also during that time in between Saul's demise and David's anointing. So there's aspects of this particular text and the whole of Judges that focuses in on Israel as a collective people and also Saul and his particular demise. And this weaves its way through and finds a lot of resonances in what we're going to look at today. So there's an individual and a collective rendering of the broken covenant relationship, which points to the reality of what life is like when we reject God.
So the pattern that emerges early in Judges, which you can pick up in, in Judges chapter 2, and I'll let you read that at your own leisure, is we see that God's covenant people live in God's blessing. Then there's a breaking of the covenant with God through pursuing other gods and, and idols. And, you know, an example of this is in Judges 2, 11 to 13, and it says, Then the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and worshipped the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and worshipped Baal and Astartes. So the people are living with God. They break the covenant with God. And then there is an oppression on the people. We read, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. Yes, that's what plunderers do, right? And he sold them into the power of their enemies all around so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And then from that point, what do the people do? They cry out to God. And as they cry out to God, God raises up a deliverer, a leader who delivers the people. And that particular person throughout judges, different people obviously, but that deliverer, who leads the people out of oppression, is what a judge is described as. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. But guess what happened when the judge died? The people just went back doing what they wanted to do. And as the book progresses and gets to the point where our text is today, the people stop crying out to God. They just break the covenant and that's it. There is no crying out to God because the generations have gone by and they have completely rejected and forgotten God. They have no heart for God. They have no mind for God. And so then we find ourselves in this particular text today, which has all the hallmarks of the kind of demise that comes when the people have rejected God. We don't have time to be able to go into every single one, but let me pick out a couple for you. The first is the Levite. The Levite, like the unnamed Levite in chapters 17 to 18, is supposed to be the one that is teaching the people in the way that they're supposed to go. They're the ones that help the people remember what the nature and the substance of the covenant relationship is. In many respects, they're supposed to be the exemplars of that covenant relationship. Not a great example being set here, right? We see earlier in chapter 19 that the Levite pursues his concubine to the concubine's father's house. There's a range of exchanges between the father and the Levite. The father convinces both the Levite and the concubine to stay and stay and stay. And after four days or so, they finally leave. One of the potential reasons why the father is wanting them to stay is because he doesn't trust the Levite. The guy's not exactly a great example, as we see further on in the text. He doesn't want his daughter to go with this particular person because he does not trust him. 
Any of you have daughters? If you have a daughter, you know that you want to be able to trust anyone that they go with. Same with sons. But the irony is that the Levite should be the one person that can be trusted, but in this instance, no way. We take it down another level. I mean, this is a narrative. So the Levite also serves as the protagonist. He's the perpetrator of the most abhorrent actions. And the narrator positions the Levite, as was done in chapters 17 and 18, as the central figure that the whole of Israel need to relate to. They need to see themselves through the eyes of what this person is actually doing. He is the symbol of the broken covenant relationship when he should have been the exemplar of what keeping the covenant looks like. So the Levite is a hallmark of the way in which the people have spiralled out of control. So too is the treatment of women, obviously. Now, in considering the contrast between the treatment of the concubine and the treatment of women in the beginning of Judges to kind of set the scene of this is where they were and this is how far they've fallen, Dennis Olson suggests this. He says, the scene is a reversal of the first woman we encounter in the book of Judges, Aksa, daughter of Caleb. The love, generosity and promotion of life and well-being that characterise the relationship between women and men at the beginning of Judges are tragically absent here at the end of Judges as we think about the way in which the concubine was treated in Gibeah. An essential measure of the health of Israel as God's covenant people is found in the way that the people uphold the imperatives of looking after the weak and the poor and the marginalised. Now, this is not to be condescending, obviously, to women, but in a patriarchal society, things were different to the way that they are today. Any society can take its measure on how it tolerates violence against women. How are we doing as Australians? On average, one woman a week is murdered by her current or former partner in Australia. One in three Australian women have experienced physical violence since the age of 15. One in five Australian women has experienced sexual violence. And one in six Australian women has experienced physical or sexual violence by current or former partners. I know that might be confronting for some of you, if not all of us. But the point of this is that we just can't look at a time way back in the day and think it doesn't relate to us today. I remember, you know, a couple of years ago when we were living in Adelaide, getting a call from someone who's very dear to us here in Queensland, middle of the night sort of stuff, and then recounting the fact that they had just been strangled by their husband and by some miracle had slipped away and ran out of the house and was ringing us from a park down the road from where they lived. Now, I mean, living in Adelaide, we couldn't exactly get in the car and drive over there, but were able to help out in a range of different ways. But when that sort of stuff happens, personally, and we engage with what's happening in this text, it only reiterates the heartbreak 
that comes when people violate the lives of other people. We know deep down that's not the way that God created life to be, don't we? So how women are treated in this text is a hallmark, again, of the way in which Israel had spiralled out of control. And just quickly, the, the way in which hospitality is exercised in this text. Hospitality, even now, is a huge thing in the Middle East. I went to Lebanon a couple of years ago, and as soon as we got there, all we did was eat. That's pretty much how it goes. And we sat down and we thought, okay, they brought out, you know, the falafel and the, all the different bits and pieces. No meat. We thought, that's okay, you know, there's enough here. And then came out probably about 20 kilos of meat. And there was two of us. <laughs> Hospitality is a big thing in the Middle East. Obviously yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bachare, up in the hills where the cedars of Lebanon grow in abundance, as does the meat, obviously. <laughs> But hospitality is a big deal. And as part of the covenant with God's people, hospitality was key. Here is this group of people that come into Gibeah. This is Benjaminite territory. This should be a safe place. This should be a place where hospitality is exercised. Not at all. The hospitality is exercised by someone who's not a resident necessarily of, of Gibeah. It's a dude who's come from Ephraim and he's doing some work there and he's like, well, I'll take you in. No one else is going to take you in and you do not want to be out here when it gets dark. The brutality, the inhospitability that falls on the people is mind-blowing. The hospitality should have been offered, it wasn't. It wasn't because the people of God had spiralled out of control. But as the scene moves into a brutal and obscene place, what we see is the way in which there is a bit of movement from Israel as a whole and a zeroing in on Saul and the way in which his life is spiralling out of control. So the narrator positions the Levite as a witness to Israel's breaking of the covenant relationship with God, but the Benjaminites represent Saul's spiraling life. Anyone know where Saul was born? Hopefully someone does. Gibeah. Where's this playing out? In Gibeah. Saul was a Benjaminite. It's the Benjaminites who are the residents of Gibeah. It's not a coincidence because remember this is being written from here looking back. It is a reflection on, at the very least, the way in which Saul is tearing the nation apart. And it's perhaps most profound in the kind of activity that the people are seeking to bring against the guest. Now, this is not primarily about an act of homosexuality. 
It is about an exercising of power and authority over the Levite in order to humiliate and destroy him. That's what in back in the day was done in order to be able to bring that about, to perpetrate that on another. The way in which Saul was using his power and authority as the king was exercised in a way where he was seeking to humiliate and destroy David. There is an aspect of this which reflects the fact that Saul had spiralled out of control in the way in which his power and authority was being used towards David. And we only need to delve into to 1 Samuel and see the ways in which that plays out. But furthermore, there's a parallel in this to the way in which in Sodom, in Genesis 19, 4-8, Lot's daughters are offered up. And we know what happened to Sodom. And there's an aspect of this where it is foreshadowing the kind of destruction that was going to come upon Saul as well. Nothing good is coming from the way in which Saul was utilising his power and authority. But then we really start to get into the, the, just the grubbiness of this text. What happens to the concubine? Now remember, this, this is a word for Israel. And it's a gruesome reflection of the absolute decay of the nation through its rejection of God and the seeking of life through only doing what was right as far as they were concerned. The cutting up of the concubine is an absolute slapdown to any heroic recollection that the people might be making of Saul. One of Saul's, if not Saul's, most heroic moment came in a battle against the Ammonites. So in 1 Samuel 11, Saul cuts up an oxen, sends it out, calls the people to war against the Ammonites who had held up the city of uh, Jabesh-Gilead. They went in, plundered, won. Everyone's like Saul, amazing. Written from the point of view of looking back, Saul's not so amazing. And if the cutting up of the concubine does anything, it provides an incredible slapdown to the way in which Saul has reigned as king so that there is nothing heroic about his activities, but it also serves as a massive slapdown to the people of Israel. Because what are they being called to war for? If this is being sent out as a means to say, we need to gather in order to be able to fight, who are they aiming to fight? They are fighting amongst themselves. The Levite cuts up the concubine, sends the parts out and says, we need to gather in order to fight against the Benjaminites. What happens when we think that we're right in our own eyes, all of us? As the church, what happens when we get around thinking that we're right in our own eyes? We turn in on ourselves and all we do is fight and argue and try and present our particular position on things 
And all the while, the brokenness in the world around us misses out on being able to see the glory of God. So too it was with Israel. As they fought amongst themselves and dropped the ball completely as God's covenant people, what happened? The glory of God could not be seen by the nations around about them because they were too busy fighting amongst themselves. And their fighting amongst themselves weren't just polite arguments on the floor of a meeting. Thousands of people died, as if you want to, in Judges 20 and 21, you can explore for yourself. But the ridiculousness of that fighting amongst themselves is seen in chapter 21, down the line, where after this call to war, through the sending off of the dismembered concubine, as they fight amongst themselves, in chapter 21, there's a verse that says, gee, it's a shame what happened to the Benjaminites. And they were the ones that perpetrated it. Disunity leads to distraction, diminishes our capacity to bear witness to God, but it creates great confusion about who we are. Why are we there? What's the purpose? Because we know right back in the beginning of Judges, the purpose was for the people to continue to go and conquer the land together as God's covenant people. And instead of going forth and conquering the land, They've spiraled out of control to the point where all they're doing is fighting amongst themselves. So what do we do when life spirals out of control for ourselves, for others, even as the church? Where's the hope? Do we leave it at that, like at the end of Judges? It's just, that's it? Clearly, Judges is not written just in isolation. It is very plausible to see this as a book that the young King David was able to hold as a teaching for him to be able to say, do not go that way. Uphold the covenant, honour God, put God first, because if not, this is what happens. And so too it is for us. We are called into a covenant relationship with God which we remember when we come to this table. Time and time again, that's the story that we engage in. Yes, we engage in the truth that there are times when our lives, even now, can still spiral out of control to a degree. Where we question, doubt, maybe even fleetingly give up on God because He hasn't come through with the goods the way that we wanted. But we can always come back. We can always return. When a covenant is restored, we can commit, but God constantly recommits. We know full well that we break God's heart when we turn away from Him. Seeking our own gods, our own ways of living life, doing what we think is right in our own eyes. We come to this table because this is God's constant reminder of His commitment to us. But it cost God everything to remind us that He is willing time and time again to recommit to us.
Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. The old has gone, the new has come. A covenant that is made in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And as long as we eat and drink, we are doing what we're called to do as the people of God, and that is proclaim Jesus. So I invite you to come this morning and partake as a means for you to recommit to this covenant relationship that God has called you into. To celebrate that, to know that you are forgiven, to know that you are loved, to know that you are one with God because everything has been done in order for all of us to be able to live in relationship with God. It's up to us to come and receive.